This is an Alliance podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, leaders and fighters for freedom and liberty and the American dream, the best is yet to come. Welcome back to Build It, the non-league soccer podcast where we talk to non-league soccer people. And, you know, today, maybe not so much non-league soccer people, but joining me as ever, John Hall, Chairman, CEO, Thought Leader, Driving Force of DeKalb County United. Hi, John. What's up, buddy? And this week's special guest is a lady by the name of Toby Johnson. Hi, Toby. Hey, how's it going? We're all good. So, Toby, you are, for those who, the, the, the three people who don't know who you are, give, care to give a brief introduction of to you and your job role. So I am the founder and exec or CEO, I guess, chief, chief executive officer. Not really. It's a small, I have a tiny firm and we're, uh, we have, I have two sides of my firm. One side's Toby Johnson Associates and we do consulting and uh, support for volunteer led organizations, helping them grow and sustain volunteerism. And on the other side of the house, we have Volunteer Pro, which is an online community and online courses for leaders of volunteers. So we're all volunteer all the time. I like to tell people that uh, we are like a human resources consultant for unpaid workers. So the folks who hire me are nonprofits and government organizations that are driven by volunteers. Perfect. Which if you are involved in non-league soccer, you will understand exactly why we have Toby here today. Um, <laughs> we were speaking in the preamble of just you know the, the, the predicaments that so many non-league soccer clubs have in terms of being volunteer-run, volunteer-staffed, volunteer-organized, et cetera, et cetera. Um, John, as you know, the, the driving force of DeKalb, would you like to start this running in terms of what are the major headaches you've experienced in terms of managing and or sourcing volunteers? And we can sort of start it from there. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Well, I think I think this topic is um, probably one of the two most critical aspects to creating a sustainable organization in lower league soccer. Volunteers, the other being uh, revenue, which I would link right back to sponsors because that seems to be pretty important. Uh, but so many people that we've talked to, Toby, I, I'm very blessed to have people like Nick um, we have an amazing board. We have an amazing advisory board. We have staff members of, upon staff members of volunteers, which is fantastic. Uh, I think a lot of lower league clubs are a little bit envious of that. Um, I, I don't know how we've done it, to be perfectly honest with you, Toby. Um, so I, I guess my first question is, if you were starting an organization and you have a, a little background in soccer, I understand. Mm-hmm. Um so if you were starting an amateur soccer club that you wanted to treat like a professional one, um, you know, one of the first things you have to do is find people to come along the journey with you. I, where would you start? Great question. And yeah, I do have experience with soccer. I started playing soccer when I was 12 years old 
in a community in the Pacific Northwest. Now I'm going to, I'm going to kind of give away how old I am. This was in the late 1970s. So in the U S soccer was a big thing in the Pacific Northwest, but not very much big anywhere else, but we had a huge soccer league in our community. And I started playing most of my fellow girl players on our girl team uh, had been playing since they were in first grade. So I had a lot to learn. So I learned a lot. I, I got into high school and I, uh, because we didn't have a girls team in high school and because of title nine, I joined the boys team and played JV soccer for the boys team one year. And then the next year we got girls teams throughout our, our city. So I was happy to be part of that instant, you know, sort of instigator to make sure that girls had access to soccer. And then from there, I went to college and played for Washington State University as a club player. We weren't a varsity team or a club team, but we traveled around and played other universities. So that was a lot of fun. And then I did co-rec in leagues throughout until my early 50s. And then I had two knee braces and two ankle braces. <laughs> I was like, okay, robo soccer has got to stop. And so I, you know, finally had to re reluctantly say, okay, I'm going to hang up the boots and I'm going to be done. But I've had a lot of experience with co-rec leagues and, you know, it, the work of, for example, the team manager, unsung heroes, but totally uh, not recognized. It is, it is work that is not often appreciated. Uh, and it's, it's, pretty, you know, dedicated work. You know, I helped out our team manager from time to time. And I'm like, you know, you're doing a lot for the team. I think people don't realize that. So, you know, in order to more quote unquote professionalize uh, your volunteer program and at the same time, not make it too bureaucratic, you do need to kind of figure out, you know, from a human resources sense, what are the different roles that you need? What are the skills of people might be in those roles? Um, and start to really create clear role descriptions. And part of the reason you want to do that is you want to be able to describe to the folks you're trying to recruit for these positions what it entails. So what's sort of a minimum and a maximum number of hours that they feel like they need to set aside in their life to contribute this time? What are the th activities they're going to be involved in? And is there going to be any support and training for them? And you as an organization, think of yourself as an architect of experience. You're, you're creating a volunteer experience for folks. And if you can create an experience that is fun, that people feel connected and that people feel has meaning, as well as makes good use of their very limited time, they're gonna keep coming back over and over again. It has to meet some needs on the volunteers part. When it comes to actually finding volunteers, I mean, you have a community already. If, if you're starting a league from scratch, then you don't have your teams ready. But if you have already have teams in place, then you have a huge possible volunteer pool. I mean, you've got, you know, the parents of every kid you've got, and parents want to volunteer with their kids because they don't have extra time. Most people who are uh, parents are, are volunteering in some way in their kids' lives because, you know, they just don't have time to go elsewhere and volunteer. Um, but there's also people who've played soccer in the past, like myself, who might have an interest in coming back and coaching or managing or doing admin or, you know, setting up the nets in the field or, you know, putting chalk down, whatever it is, you know. 
Um, so there's lots of ways. So when you're thinking about these different roles, you want to think of all the different ways. But you know, it's almost you know what you have a community already to make the ask of. Now there's different four different main ways you can recruit volunteers. The first place I would go, you know, networking and word of mouth is is a very uh, common way that people learn about volunteer opportunities, and you have usually as a, a league, you have a huge mailing list of people and you can start making the ask to those people. But, you know, it usually takes more than just, you know, desperate pleas for help to get people to step up. You know, you have to have an organized system. You need to let people know the training they're going to pro provide. You need to be clear about their roles and responsibilities, the minimum maximum number of hours. But there's other ways you can also recruit folks through, you know, um, social media, through uh, posting online, um, like in websites like Volunteer Match, uh, or your local hands-on network affiliate or your local volunteer center where you can post uh, opportunities for volunteers. Um, you know, nowadays there was some research done recently by Volunteer Match um, that 60% of volunteers are now finding their opportunities online on, on websites like Volunteer Match and others. And 36% using Google. So they surveyed a bunch of volunteers and asked, well, how, do you how did you find out about the opportunities? Where do you go to look for volunteer opportunities? So it used to be only word of mouth, only face-to-face, -face, only direct asks or people you know dialing for dollars on the phone now it's more we're starting to see a shift towards digital and towards you know websites and um these uh sort of interfaces where people are marketing their volunteer opportunities so if you're setting up in addition to knowing the roles you need and being able to explain them well and have a system for supporting and training and onboarding folks you also want to have a website that describes well all of these things because people are going to research you online way before they reach out to you. Um, and then there's just every single event you ever do. You should have a table that's dedicated to volunteering. You have gregarious people standing in front of it, chit chatting with people about the needs of the league and really making the league its identity about volunteerism and about giving back to create that culture that this is how we do in this league, that this is the only reason we survive is because we help one another. And so it's an expectation that everybody who's part of this league in some way or another is going to give back to it. And I think if you can continue to message along that, it kind of primes the pump for people to step forward and say like, yeah, I think I wanna help out in whatever way I can, you know, and offering people really flexible roles, you know, like, something that could be like a once a month thing to something that's a weekly thing. You know, not everybody has, you know, the luxury of like showing up and volunteering 20 hours a week, you know? Sure. I mean, I think one of the things that we've been guilty of, and John, you probably hope you'd agree, is we've, we've probably said, hey, does anyone want to help us rather than the, does, does anyone want to help us with this thing? Yes. Yes. And it's, yeah. it's setting the parameters and the expectations and the clarity. Yes. And connecting to why it matters. You know, sometimes people do want to lick envelopes because they have a really stressful job. I used to volunteer at a, a museum 
in an art museum on the weekends. And I had a really stressful, high stress. I was the director of a volunteer program statewide, $3.5 million. I mean, it was huge. So on my weekends, I wanted to do something really chill. So I worked in the resource library of the museum. It was quiet. People would come in, you know, very, very chill. But, you know, I knew that ahead of time and I could pick and choose what I wanted that would fit my personality and my need. But yeah, the, the desperate call for help, first of all, it sort of uses like neg negative social proof, right? We like to follow what, what the rest of the, the herd is doing. You know, we're herd animals, basically humans. So if you're, if you're putting desperate pleas for help out, you're basically calling into question, you know, well, why isn't anybody helping? You know, and it, it casts doubt as to whether or not it's worth it to help. So desperate does not work. You know, what works is focused uh, and, and well-described opportunities. And then a connection to why it matters to the mission. That's, that's a great point, Toby. I think one of the things that, so at our club, what we're, in the early days, we had to tell our, our why story a lot. Yes. And, and that's, that's what I'm, every uh, off season, which we're in now, I identify sort of a sticking point of something that I need to do a better job of. And, and I think getting back to why we do what we do is, is critical. Um, I, that's, that's a great point. Why, you know, in creating the culture of, Hey, this is what we all do. Come be a part of it. And, and I think that's great. Um, I don't know if you can speak to this, but I'm curious, we've got a great relationship with uh, um, starting to really have a great relationship with NIU and their sports management program. Um, as you're as you're working or looking and recruiting volunteers, where does you know the possibility of internships and Absolutely. using some of those resources come into it? Absolutely, getting stuff on your resume is a huge motivator for younger volunteers. And interestingly enough, um, we do a annual survey called the Volunteer Management Progress Report, and we survey volunteer managers from around the world. Right now it's actually open. Um, it's gonna close on November 19th. And my survey partner, research partner in this is in Melbourne, Australia at a university called La Trobe University. And it is known for sport. In Australia, most sport, including professional sports is driven by volunteers. So like consider like, uh, you know, the NFL, like all of the concessions, all of the gate, all of that would be run by volunteers. So in, in Australia, even professional sport is at base really supported by volunteers. And so the, the university is focused on that, on, on that, and they have a volunteer management program for people who are, are, are growing and learning into a career to work in sport. And so my friend teaches this class, this volunteer management class, and all of her students, and she usually gets about 100 to 150 students every semester, and they all have to go intern at a nonprofit during their semester work. And they love it because they're learning to, you know, if you're going to work in sport uh, anywhere, at sooner or later, you're going to come across volunteer engagement. Um, and so uh, I think for people who are in sport management, you know, it's an interesting thing to have that in your back pocket as a skill, you know, so bringing folks on as interns, as 
you know, sort of supporting your volunteer program. You know, I always, I always highly recommend that nonprofits have a volunteer welcome team that they form, that volunteers are working alongside whoever's coordinating volunteers. Now, in a lot of nonprofits, there's nobody called the volunteer manager or the volunteer administrator. It's usually staff have that as part of their job. So they're often very stretched, wearing a lot of hats. And you know, I'm like, why don't you have a volunteer, all volunteer welcome team? And every time you bring on a new volunteer, they're doing the work of onboarding, training, welcoming, supporting. And so that's a great job for an intern to be part of a team like that, because it's very clear, clear cut, because internships have to have a, also have to have an educational component. It's not just about getting free labor. It's about helping students come on board and learn something wow. So it has to be, you know, an educational goal in mind. So, um, you know, students can also, you know, students in business or learning uh, marketing, et cetera, are really great to have uh, as interns, uh, but it has to be a structured program. But absolutely, it's, I think that's a great partnership to have. Do you, do you think, um, we've just kind of been scratching the surface with internships lately. Um, and one of, one of our challenges is we don't have a corporate office. We don't have a clubhouse. We don't have a home base. Um, so I've, I've had a hard time, um, sort of, it's different when you're working there, you know, at the cubicle over and they have a question and they can come over and we can have a conversation about it. All of our work, especially through the pandemic has been a lot of remote trust and Hey, let's walk through it together. And then. All right, you take it and then come back to me with questions and, and some of those things. But one of my challenges with that is the onboarding process in a remote environment like us. Sure. Um, I, it, it, the onboarding is a big piece I want to get into with here. But, but with internships, because they're generally such a short-term thing, sometimes I feel like that ROI, mm -hmm. it, can act, it can be very difficult to go, all right, I've got you for two and a half months or three months. If we're not in our season right now, which we have a long off season for our club. So it's very difficult to kind of keep that engagement up to get value for both sides in that window of time. And I'm just, I'm always kind of leery. How do you retain once you onboard them and hopefully get them loving what you're doing? How do you get them to stick around beyond the internship while they're still going to school for two more years at that university? Yeah. Well, first of all, in terms of if you work closely with a, a school or department to get a program in place, you can kind of reuse that program again and again. And if you can get into the classroom and do a little bit of pre-work in the classroom or as part of class work, you can start to, you know, get, get hit the ground running a little bit faster. Um, People often ask me about this. How do I retain my interns? And I and I my, I tell them like the brutal truth because I'm 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 a straight shooter. I will tell them you don't because an internship is a in some ways it's different than other types of volunteering. It is a transactional type of relationship. I give you my time. You give me a learning ex uh, experience. And when folks are done, you know, students are busy, they've got other things to do, and they're going to move on to the next learning experience the next semester if they can, because they, you know, of course, they want to have as much as they can on their, on their uh, resume, right? They want to get as many diverse experiences, and you can't fault people for that. 
And so when you're thinking about designing an intern uh, opportunity, you might want to think more on a project basis. So here's the end deliverables of this project, making sure that it, ha it has value to your organization. And at the end of the day, you don't feel like your time was wasted or their time was wasted. But, you know, students, first of all, they're, they're, you know, they're busy. Second of all, they've, you know, each semester they got something else going on. Third of all, they're mobile. They don't all live in the area. You know, they come there for school during the school year, they're gone. Um, if you're lucky, people will come back or people will want to do part B of the internship. You could work with the school to say, okay, I want to do an internship, but I want it to be two semesters, not one. Um, and we're going to do all kinds of diverse things through that period. So it's really highly a valuable educational experience for the, for the students, but you know, you got to give that value, but you know, to expect it, it, you know, it's more transactional than relational, which is other, you know, other volunteer opportunities are more relational, but you can still, I've worked with volunteers from the university of Tennessee, uh, in the business school. And it's been, you know, it's, it's, it's hit or miss. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not good, but with the kicker really that creates the better relationship is to have a really good relationship with the professor that's teaching those students so that you can co-create curriculum and a service experience that works for you and works for the student. That, all, that makes perfect sense. Sometimes this, uh, Nick has filled you in a little bit. This is, this project with this club that we've got is something that was not in my expertise or anybody else's really. Mm -hmm. um, we kind of just came together and created it and we're learning a lot as we go, but it, every year is a different challenge and experience. Sure. Now that we're into year three or four and, and, and creating those relationships with, with a couple of the professors, um, the internship thing is kind of ramped up. So now it's another thing that I have to self-teach. So it's, it's interesting to hear maybe my, uh, my expectations of, I want people to internship and then, or intern with us and then fall in love and never leave. Maybe I, uh, maybe I've missed the target a bit. So, we wish uh, I, cr I crossed my fingers yeah. for you. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Um, yeah. so, so back to onboarding. So my, <laughs> you know, kind of forgetting internships in general, but, um, when we, what we've done recently um, is when we have a, a specific task, which I'm glad we're, at least Nick, I think we're on the right page with some of the things we've done recently. We create a job description and say, this is what we're looking for. And then we've networked a little bit and uh -huh. we've put it out on the socials and try to fill a couple of these specific roles. So at our club, we have, and, and again, this to all the non-league clubs that kind of listen to us um we have you know nick uh handles marketing and media we have memberships we have uh, we don't have ticketing we have community engagement we have the soccer stuff we have all these game day operations we have all these different things and we're trying to plug the right people into each of those roles great and and so when we bring somebody new in, we come up with the job description. And, and most recently I can talk about her because I'm sure she listens to our podcast. So we wanted a community outreach director, somebody to go set up the table at these events and shake hands and tell the story and do these things. So um, uh, Ashley is her name. She joined us just about a month and a half, two months ago, maybe. Um, 
but again, and she's in the same town, but even so life's busy. So it's, it was a lot of kind of like we had a, a phone call, we've done a lot of emailing and the onboarding is very, you know, I want to put her in a position to succeed and also not too much too fast and let her have some creativity with the role and things like that. Um, again, as Nick will tell you, 56 sentences to ask a question, but what in our situation would you, you know, how would you onboard maybe more effectively, more efficiently? Yes. Yeah. For first things first, I would say do your recruitment in bulk. So rather than recruiting people onesies, twosies, um, if you can figure out like pre-plan for 2022, for example, okay, we're going to get our roles together. We're going to get it all organized and we're going to do one or two big recruitment drives. Uh, now you might have to do a little after the fact and fill roles here and there, there, but that means you can onboard everybody and train them at the same time. Um, or in, maybe you offer a few different, you know, zoom calls with everybody, um, so that you commit, commit, address different people's scheduling, um, conflicts and you can record things, right? This doesn't have to be complicated, but you know, I always recommend because I work with a lot of nonprofits that are small and they're like, look, I don't have time to do all of this. I'm doing all this other stuff. And then I have to do volunteer stuff. And, and I go, well, why are you doing recruitment 365 days a week, 24 hours a day? That's not good economy of scale. So do a launch type campaign, choose your, you know, maybe two times a year and recruit in bulk and then train everybody together. This is a good reason for, there's a lot of reasons this is a good reason. Number one, it saves you time. But number two, you give people the opportunity to network with one another. Now you can do this online. You can do this remotely. If you use Zoom meetings, you can break people out into groups to introduce to one another and to just, you know, people have to make social connections. The more socially connected we feel to our fellow volunteers, the more likely we're going to show up because we are not going to ghost people who are our friends. You know, we can ghost somebody we don't really know very well and, and you know, or not even not ghost, but just not be as, as uh, committed as we need to be. But we're not going to do that with our friends. And you want, the more your volunteers feel like friends, the more they're going to be consistent with one another. So you can do, you know, your orientation part of your training, which is sort of your induction what are the, you know, your big why, you know, your talking points, all of your volunteers are ambassadors for you, regardless of whether they're refereeing or they're working your outreach table. Um, so you want them all to know because they're all going to parties. Well, not right now, but you know, after pandemic, people are going to barbecues and cocktail parties and holiday parties and whatever, what you doing? Well, I'm volunteering. Oh, really? What do they do? You want them all to be able to be spokespeople for you rather whether or not outreach is in their name. So that's your orientation, your policies and procedures, your basic stuff for everybody. And then if possible to give people a little bit of training by role. So specific to the role, don't make everybody sit through training that's not specific to their role. Um, I'm sure that there's certain training that's more intensive than others. So you can kind of chunk it out that way. If you can at some point deputize the folks who are in these roles to train up the new people, all the better. But it needs to be clear what's being trained. It needs to be consistent. Um, you know, I don't know if you all do CPR and, and safety training, but that might be something you give all volunteers. And it's a perk, right? It's a kind of perk you could give people. 
So um, when it comes to onboarding, it's all it's as important to teach about the policies and procedures as it is about the culture of your organization. The other thing is you want to welcome people into your organization to feel like they are part of who you are, what you're doing. So when you do that, you want to share a little bit about the future of the organization as well. Here's where we're headed. Um, give them some insights on strategy. Now, you don't need to do this all at once necessarily, it depends. Um, but uh, if you can you know, make, make human to human connections, share a little bit about the strategy and the big vision for the organization and train people up so they feel confident and comfortable in their roles. Um, you're going you're gonna to go a lot better than, hey, you're starting on Monday. Here's an email with a bit of information. Good luck. Email me or call me. You can text me. Here's my phone. You can text me if you have problems. It, it, the more care you take with this without making it over bureaucratic, the more people will take it seriously. You know, if you're sort of fly by night with how you bring on new volunteers, they're going to be fly by night in the way that they treat your organization because you've basically taught them that this is how we do business. So, you know, it does take a little pre-work, but once you've got it done, you know, you've got your system in place. And um, again, I am a huge fan of volunteer welcome teams, individual phone calls to each and every volunteer from a team of volunteers who are just saying, hey, welcome. We're so excited you're here. You know, appreciation starts on day one and never ends because, you know, like I said, like the team manager, uh, unsung hero, completely thankless work. Nobody ever says thank you, <laughs> you know, and they're dealing with all the like inner conflict on the team and people are mad because somebody's a ball hog and somebody forgot to bring the ball bag. And, you know, they changed the, you know, the, the rain out, the, the field was rained out. And now they, they forgot, you know, somebody didn't get the, the memo on the new field change, whatever it is, you know, they get, they get the brunt of the complaining, right? So you got to show a lot of love, shower people with love from the very beginning to the very end of their service. It's, it's wonderful. And, and you described probably, um, you know, I, I'm a little probably more fly by night casual um, again, because it's all new and I'm learning and sure. I mean, we all are. So I think sure. it's uh, interesting to hear the right way to do things you know, sort of. Hey man, we all started at the same spot, you know, everybody, nobody comes out of the womb knowing how to lead people. You know, it's one thing, it's one thing to lead paid staff. I'm going to tell you, leading unpaid volunteers, it's much harder. They can walk with their feet, you know, it takes, it takes better leadership skills, you know, especially in today's divided world. I mean, you got to make, you got to take people who have completely different points of view and have them work together, you know? So, you know, it's, it's not easy at all. It's not easy, but it's the, the you know, there's so much, it, it, the payoff is so fantastic when people are working together. You know, our whole country is driven on volunteer talent. If you think about it, there is, you know, it, you know, nonprofits are a huge, I don't know what the percentage is, but a, a huge part of our GDP. But imagine about all the volunteers that support all these nonprofits. Your league would not exist without them. You know, it just wouldn't exist. And think of all of the things around the world that wouldn't exist. And it's, it's great that you're, you're thinking, you know, how can I improve this? How can I? Because the better you get at it, the more 
the community is going to get involved in more creative ways. You know, you start to expand and be sustainable, which is fantastic. Do you think that's that, that whole reach out, outreach thing is ideally best suited to one individual person or can it be like a collaborative person if someone's doing it for, um, you know, a different part of the organization? So when med- you're doing recruitment? Well, 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 the onboarding as much as anything. Oh, onboarding, I think it should be as a group. Right. If at all possible, because again, it's the, the, the social connections. You know, let's say you got people on together in a Zoom and you go, okay, gang, we're also going to break out. You're all going to get, you know, break out in small groups. You're going to get to introduce one another. Uh, and so that you can put a face to a name. Mm-hmm. You know, you could break out groups in, in terms of, you know, roles, people that sure. might bump into each other or just have volunteers say hi to one another, you know kind of depends yeah. no, I, know, I, but the, i would do it as a group only because it's going to save you a lot of time sure okay yeah. cool start small think big ain't no other better way to live if you think big start small you ain't gotta have a lot to have it all slow it down take your time because okay we are back for part two of this volunteer special hang on it's a special we'll do a christmas special when we interview santa claus or something um john take it away i feel like this is a thing that you just need to talk to so yeah no absolutely so so i guess one one question that i wrote down and maybe you've sort of answered it but how do you balance expectations of engagement with volunteers who have real lives and other, you know, more important obligations than, than our little project. Yeah. Yeah. Couple, well, we talked about role descriptions. So being really clear up front, what's the time expected? There is nothing worse than being volunteer, you know, being asked to volunteer to contribute time and people like, Oh no, it's only going to be a few hours a week. And then all of a sudden it's 10 hours a week. I've had this happen to me or when's it, when's it going to be done? You know, the, you know, folk, you know, we're all busy and I have, you know, I have my own business. So my business sort of ebbs and flows lately. It's hella busy, you know, come another month, it might be slower and I can do more. Right. But I need to know ahead of time to be able to plan that in my life. And I need my volunteer organization to understand that, that, you know, I'm not signing my life away. I think it's fair to uh, when you recruit volunteers to give them a beginning, middle and end date for their, their commitment. Now that doesn't mean they go away at the end of the end date. We, I used to work for a homeless youth serving organization in San Francisco when I lived in San Francisco and our volunteer coordinator would, uh, recruit volunteers for a six month stint. And at the end of your engagement, it's six months, you could either stay where you were and you'd get first dibs on that role or you could choose another role in the organization and you get second dibs, or you could leave the organization. Um, so it really get, put volunteers in the, in the front seat of making decisions based on their availability and their interest. And people could rotate around the organization or they could stay in their spot and continue to work in their spot. So, uh, you know, one of the big sort of hesitations I hear from volunteers is, well, I don't want to sign my life away. And so if you can create a box around the volunteer experience so people can figure out where to fit it in, they don't feel like and they'll be more likely to step forward because it's very clear. Um, and when you ask people to step up and do more, you need to acknowledge uh, that 
you know, this is an addition and you have the option to say, no, this is not a voluntold kind of situation. So there's that. I also think, you know, we have to continue to think, how can we make volunteering easier, not harder? So, and that means different things to different organizations. If you think about where we're at as a society right now, um, you know, volunteers are stressed just like everybody else. People are exhausted, people are burnt out, people are opting out of work. <laughs> We've got the great resignation. I don't wanna see the great resignation in volunteerism, I really don't. Um, our communities need that too much. So we have to constantly think, you know, with relentless, relentless focus, how can we make this experience easier, not harder? Now, part of it is the connection to human beings and having fun and doing some and being reminded about how meaningful our work is. Sometimes it's really easy. You know, if you're, if you're uh, coaching, you know, peewee soccer kids, their, their skills are going to improve like crazy. You know, they're playing half field soccer. They're learning how to trap the ball. You know, by the end of the season, you're going to see probably some big change, you know? So there's a lot of meaning in that. But if you're doing something else where you're not seeing like people progress, you need to be reminded how, how meaningful your work is sometimes. Um, so continuing to, to remind people how meaningful it is can keep people going. Um, I also am a big fan of job sharing roles or team volunteering where there's a specific responsibility, but you have an, either two people or, you know, like you have co-managers or you have a, a team like a volunteer welcome team so that if one person can't make it, the, the role still gets fulfilled. The things still happen. It doesn't have to be now some roles you can't, you can't have co-referees, you know, like that's not going to work, but um, you know, you can, you can do for some roles have backup. The other thing I think is to uh, use asynchronous communications, but maybe not via email, like set up a Slack channel or a Slack, uh, you know, with different channels so that people can check in and check out when they're live, when they're at quote unquote work during their volunteer role. Now that's not always the case, you know, if you're, you're out on a field, you're not going to do that. Um, but if you're an administrative volunteer, um, you can go somewhere and get all the information rather than digging through and scrolling through your email, like scroll, 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 scroll. Where was that email again? You know, so there's some, some just remote working tools that people can bring on board to help make things easier. How, you know, there's, I just learned about a really cool online community platform, um, called Notion. And I was doing a, a two-day training for some folks in Maui, Hawaii. And there is a group that works with veterans and, and military folk. And he was showing it and, and it's a hub. It's a basic hub and you can use the software for free. And it has all the documents. It has the schedule. It has everything in one place. And so your volunteers only have to go to one place to get the information they need. They're not scrolling through their email. They're not looking for a voicemail somewhere. Uh, and also when you use a, something like a community forum or a team chat like Slack, you're creating a sense of community, you know, especially if you create a little fun, put some GIFs in once in a while, you know, I have worked with a remote team now for a three years and my community manager and I worked together for two years 
and we never met each other. She just left to get, she, she got promoted to a better job. I, I can't, I can't fault her for that. She was fantastic when she was with me, but we never met in per person. And we felt like a complete team working together. You know, we give each other like emoji high fives and thumbs up and, you know, Hey, here's this, here's that, you know, we're sharing. So if you can cr create a sense of there, there, if you get what I'm saying there, it, it gives people more, again, control so that they can control their work-life balance and being really, really upfront with people that you do not expect them to be on 24 seven with their volunteer opportunity, that they are and if they can be clear about when they are available versus just having people wing it, um, it creates a little more structure and people don't feel so overwhelmed. Because what happens with volunteers is if there is not clear structure, they are constantly worried they're not doing enough. And they need to know what enough looks like, you know? So you remove that anxiety in people that I'm not doing enough. You know, you don't want people feeling guilty and you want to, this is, this is what enough looks like in this role, you know? And this is, this is how we're going to communicate with one another. And then you just keep, again, um, communicating with folk, being aware when people seem like they're in trouble and just reaching out. Are you okay? What's going on? Um, those are kinds of things that I would, you know, help people make, make volunteering easier, not harder. It all makes wonderful sense. And, and you don't know this about Nick and I, but we're 24 hours on, it seems like, cause I'll get 6am text messages with, did you see what this club in England did? Why don't we do that? <laughs> and, uh, we go back, we go back and forth quite a bit on, uh, you know, when ideas pop into our heads, we're getting to the point where if we don't communicate it, we forget. So put it um, in Slack and stop texting one another. <laughs> really, guys. Uh, well, I we mean, might. if you're if you're we living might. the dream and you're loving it, then that's great. But your volunteers don't want to do that. Well, it's 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 we limit we limit the chaos to just you know certain yeah. conversations. But um, yeah. do you do you ever experience an issue where they're sort of resentment's the only word I can come up with where there's resentment between, you know, if you have an organization with certain paid staff and certain volunteer staff, um, mm -hmm. how, how, how do you sort of navigate through that and, and keep everybody pulling the same direction without, without having that resentment? Sure. I don't hear a lot about resentment per se. What I hear about is in volunteer organizations, when the volunteer manager is trying to develop volunteer roles to build the sustainability of the organization, they're trying, their job is always to find every nook and cranny where a volunteer can help, right? That's like their, it's in their DNA to be that way. And uh, because they know the power, they believe in the power of volunteerism, but what they'll experience is resistance or misunderstandings from coworkers who are like, no, 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 I don't have time for volunteers or no, 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 there's no role for them here. So it's not so much resentment, it's more resistance. And, you know, it may be that they had a past bad experience with a volunteer. And a lot of times, you know, I'm like, well, who's ultimately responsible for designing the best volunteer experience and getting the right volunteers in the right roles? Well, I'm sorry, but it's the organization's responsibility often gets blamed on the volunteer's personal character, which I'm like, mm, no, because we can all be our best selves if we're in the right environment. We know this, we know this through, through research and work 
you know, and in, in how we act in the workplace. So, but there's a, a theory uh, that's been written about and studied about by scholars called psychological contract theory. And it started in the workplace, but now a lot of volunteer, in fact, my um, friend in Melbourne, Australia, Trobe wrote a meta study on this recently, her and her husband uh, on, um, her name's Pam Kepalides on uh, the site contract and volunteerism. And she reviewed all the studies that have been written to date about this. And psychological contract goes like this. There are usually, there are two sides uh, in the volunteer experience, there's two sides. There's the volunteer, and the organization's staff or the organization. Each side, when they come together, they believe that the other side has made specific promises to them. Like, well, if this organization engages me as a volunteer, they're gonna treat me fairly, they're gonna provide me the tools I need, they're gonna provide me the training I need, all that. They're gonna provide me respect, I'm gonna be included, uh, you know, et cetera. On the organization side, they have expectations of volunteers as well, promises they think the volunteers made, like, I'm not gonna question your guidelines, I'm gonna follow all your protocols, I'm gonna show up on time, I'm gonna be a huge champion for you in the community, et cetera. And that's well, all well and good, but most of it's implicit, so it's never spoken. A lot of it's just, you know, if you've ever been in a relationship where your, your partner, it, you, you got in a fight with your partner and, and they said to you, or you said to them, like, you should have known. It's that kind of moment, right? When there's a psychological contract breach where you should have known, you should have read my mind. And you're like, what? I can't read your mind, right? It's the same thing that happens with team, you know, employees and volunteers that they'll say, you should have known, you should have read my mind. And when that breach happens, it damages morale. People will pull back and stop volunteering or people will stop inviting people to volunteer because it hasn't been worked out. So what the organization needs to do up front is to really understand what are the promises each side thinks it made to the other or, you know, you know what I'm saying? So I always, when I work with organizations where there's tension between employees and volunteers, I go, all right, let's map our psychological contracts. What do staff expect from volunteers and what do volunteers expect from staff? And let's get this in writing and communicate it really well so that we're well aware. And the interesting thing is when I facilitate these conversations, inevitably it's the same list. Like I want to be, uh, they'll say, uh, I want to be um, given the benefit of the doubt. I want to be included in the information. So I'm kept in the loop. I want people to come to me directly if there's a problem versus talking behind my back. I want to uh, be told thank you and appreciated when I do something. So all you think, we all, we're all human. We want to be acknowledged and, and valued, right? But it's important, I think, sometimes to get that out on the table if there's resentment. But it's more, for me, it's usually more about uh, resistance and perhaps a, a, an experience with a psychological contract break in the past. That's, that's the big reason I think people have. Uh, and it creates this sort of, you know, self-fulfilling cycle because, you know, oh, the volunteers didn't follow through. So I'm not going to give them any more work. Well, then the volunteers like, I didn't get any more work and therefore I'm not going to give any more work. And then the staff is like, there they go again, not giving us the work. You know what I mean? So it becomes this like death spiral and you've got to like stop it and say, okay, wait a minute. 
you know, we're all in this together. We all want to see X, Y, Z happen in our community. That's why we're here. So that's, that's the kind of, but I, you know, not resentment so much, just misunderstanding and sometimes resistance. Yeah. Perfect segue to my, uh, my next written prepared question. Um, <laughs> my question that I wrote was, do you recommend any type of volunteer agreement paperwork? Uh, do we treat it like an employment contract? Do we keep it casual? Um, so you, you mentioned sort of getting things in writing, I guess, elaborate on that if you would a little bit, how do you, how do you kind of lay that out? Code of conduct, right? I also think if you have paid employees, if they are, if you are a volunteer driven organization and majority of your staff are volunteers unpaid, then if you have a small team of paid staff, every single one of them should have volunteer, something about volunteers in their job description. Because if it's not in their job description, they're not evaluated on it. So employees, whether it's, let's say you're a larger organization and you have someone who runs your front desk and does reception. Well, their job vis-a-vis -vis volunteers is to welcome each volunteer and help point people in the right direction and to answer the phone and, and be prepared to answer questions about volunteerism. So every single employee, if you are a truly volunteer-driven organization, every employee has a responsibility to volunteers in some way. So there's that side of the house. And then in terms of the volunteer agreement, first of all, if your agreement is too long, you know, it's sort of like when you get updates on your iPhone and <laughs> you just check the box and you're moving on. That's what's gonna happen. Nobody cares. It's about people, not paperwork. However, you do have risk management things to consider, right? And you need to let people know in their agreement that, hey, you need to work within the scope of your role. There's a national, uh, a federal volunteer protection act, which is a good Samaritan law that protects volunteers from liability, but only if they're working within their scope of their job and their authority. And so, you know, you need to make that clear that like, look, this is your role, not, uh, not this. And if you do this other thing and something happens and there's a lawsuit, you know, the Federal Volunteer Protection Act, Act can't protect you. And so one of the things you want in your agreement is, yes, I agree to follow, you know, the, the scope of my work, right? But I think code of conduct, especially now, just information about civility, you know, people need to be civil. And I don't know where people are going with this lately, but you know what? It's unacceptable to be uncivil to one another in a volunteering context. I mean, I don't think it's acceptable anywhere, but especially in a volunteer context. And so maybe a little bit about where to go and what, you know, that we, you know, expect folks to, to handle problems at the lowest level possible. But if not, here's our grievance procedure. Here's our complaint procedure, that kind of thing. Now, this may not all go in a volunteer agreement. It might go in a volunteer handbook. And in the agreement, you say, you know, you agree to follow things in the volunteer handbook. Now, in your volunteer handbook, you'd probably want to pull out things in your orientation and point out specific things. But your agreement is really, you know, some people use a volunteer agreement as a waiver against liability. And, you know, I, I always like to remind them that, that what you're telling your volunteers is if anything goes wrong, it's not on us. And okay, but what kind of message does that send people, you know? I, I'm not sure, you know, that's very welcoming. 
And people are giving you of their time and talent and often treasure. Like, is that the way you really want to have the relationship go? Um, doesn't seem very two-sided. It doesn't seem equitable to me. So those are just some thoughts on, you know, what you might include in the agreement. But note that the agreement does not guarantee anything. It doesn't even guarantee that if there were a lawsuit that you would lose or win. You know, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't do much. It, what it does is point out specific things you want pointed out. That's what it does. As long as it's not 25 pages long and eight point type. <laughs> yeah. Is, is that something that you would do sort of on an annual, like a refresher annual basis with all the volunteers then? Yes. Because the other thing, when you think about the Volunteer Protection Act, you want to know who your active volunteers are. And you could say, well, you become an active appointed volunteer the minute you sign this. You know, and you could even do it electronically and have an electronic signature so you have the date and all that. If you wanted to, you don't have to. Um, but make that, the, 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 if you don't have this signed, you are not a volunteer with us. And, and this is the beginning and the end date of this agreement. Um, and then, then if, there, if the volunteer did have, a, you know, was involved in a lawsuit, you could, you could help them out by saying, yes, they were an appointed volunteer. Therefore, they're protected by the Volunteer Protection Act. Now, you guys are in Illinois, right? There may be a, good, a state Good Samaritan law as well. So check that out. It, usually they're very similar to the federal and federal Trump state, but still you should, you should know what your state Good Samaritan law is. Mm -hmm. No, I love, those are, those are great. Um, John and I are always, we always say that we're trying to, we're trying to produce a professional soccer club on a volunteer budget. Right. And yes. what it, it seems, it seems to me what you're saying there is, and you alluded to earlier, like volunteers are harder to manage because they can walk and all that obvious stuff but um there's no reason to not do it the way that you would do it at your own company with every like their employees that aren't getting paid basically so make it look and feel as professional as possible do it the right way yeah Don't just take Without, it for granted you know it, there's a balance because this is leisure time this people's leisure time so there's a balance of not getting too overly bureaucratic like your no, language sure. might sure. not be as legalistic as yeah. it might be with paid employees. I always like but to make it, it really like empowering language, like yeah. we welcome people from all walks of life. And, you know, I commit to, like, I like to make my volunteer agreements. I commit to asking for help when I need it. I commit mm -hmm. to, you, you know what I mean? I like it to be more proactive, less legalistic. Yeah. You know, it's, and if it, it's the it's a nice solid thing though, isn't it? It's a tangible thing that yes. says we value you. It's not just, you're not, we don't think that you're going to fly off tomorrow. So here's our investment in you. Yes. Yeah. It's a two way. Yeah, absolutely. Two way street. Oh, look, he's thinking strap in. <laughs> no, Toby's off the hook on this, Nick. This is your, you and I are going to have several follow-ups. Uh, oh, great. As, as will others once they get to listen to this wonderful podcast. Yes, indeed. So. indeed. Yeah. We have. Yeah, that's um, great. Um, no, I, I was going to ask, um, Toby, I, I flipped through um, your, on your website, Volunteer Pro, I, I flipped through and downloaded your ebook, which I've only got through two chapters of. That's what I've, I've, um, I've spent as much time as I can going through it. And every bullet point, of course, leads me to thoughts and things <laughs> I should do differently. <laughs> That's why it's taking me so long to get through it because I don't just read. I, I read and then turn it into something. Um, sure. 
One of the things that jumped out at me, you, you talked about some of the myths that people may have with having volunteers. Mm-hmm. Um, without, I read through them. I kind of know some of the answers, but I thought I'd rather hear your voice. Uh, what are some of those myths that people, you know, may misconstrue with having volunteers? Yes. Love to share. Let's see. Here's a good one. All I need is a group of super volunteers and I'll be totally successful. Like I need superheroes. If I find the perfect volunteer, the people will say the quality volunteer. Um, And and I'm just like, "Mm, no, you know, I love to train on this. I talk about a guy by the name of William Muir. He was a psychologist and and he did, um, he did, uh, this study on chickens and they tried to breed this like super chicken, right? So they kept breeding and breeding and breeding. And what they meant by super chicken was the one, the chickens that laid the most eggs. That was productivity wise. So they put all the super chickens and they kept inbreeding the super chickens, inbreeding, inbreeding, inbreeding. And then they had the non-super chickens, the just random control group of whoever. And I always like to ask when I'm training, I'll ask the group like, okay, gang, who do you think ended up being which group, the super chickens or the regular chickens ended up being the most productive egg layers. And they would say the regular chickens. And I go, yes, intuitively, you know this, that human beings and well, we're not chickens, but that, you know, with the super chicken model, we're we're trying to always think we have to have super chickens In, in the work world, in the industrial complex, everybody thinks they need to have like, the perfect team with all the best skills. But in reality, uh, that's not the case. In fact, the super chickens ended up pecking each other to death. I mean, they were not getting along. They're like too many alphas in the group. And so when you think about a model of development of a team, you know, it's better to have people that are at differing levels and differing skill sets and, and not all super chickens because they build cohesive community capital because they have to talk to one another more often. They have to work things out more often. There has to be more communication. And through that, there creates this very strong bond. So, you know, people, I need the quality volunteers. I need the best volunteers. If we only get the best volunteers, then our organization, voila, will be perfect. No, that's not how it is at all. And in fact, you don't want everybody to be perfect. You want everybody to be, you know, come human as their authentic selves. And you'll have a better team if you create the environment for that to happen. You know, again, it's the organization's responsibility to become the architect of the volunteer experience and create something fantastic. Um, And people will keep coming back. And the thing is, it, it feeds on itself because once people are having fun and are dedicated, they stay for years. I mean, I run volunteer programs where I've had volunteers around for 20 years, way longer than I ever worked at the organization. It's absolutely possible, but the work has to have meaning. People need to be supported. People need to to feel like it's a healthy place to be emotionally. Uh, And when those things happen and and real real things are happening in humans' lives, then people want to stick around and support. So that's one myth I see big time. Um, You know, collaboration is the new competition. You know, collaboration is the new competition. Uh, you know, when people can work together better, uh, you win. That's just how it is in today's world. Uh, let's see what other ones. 
Oh, another one is volunteers don't have motives. Like volunteers are pure. They don't have any reason they volunteer. They just want to come and give of themselves. And volunteers will promote that, that myth as well, because they don't want to be seen as selfish. If you ask a volunteer, well, what do you want to get out of this? They'll say, oh, no, not nothing, nothing. They've done research on this. And we all know that people get something out of volunteering. And when they don't, they stop. So for your intern students, they want to get something on their resume. They want to get real world experience. They want to be able to go to an employer and say, yeah, I had a job here. I have a reference. I did volunteering here. Um, you know, for your parents, they want to spend quality time with their kids. You know, if you're a parent coach, uh, you want to spend quality time with your kids. If you're a retiree and you're doing like, I don't know, being a linesman, Hey, you just want to like spend time on the pitch because you can't, your knees have given out, but you can't like, you know, you can't stay away from it, you know? So everybody has their motivations for why some people want to be leaders. They have a motivation where they, you know, they have an ego in the, in the fight and pe people, a lot of times those folks want to be organizers of events or they want to be on boards, that kind of thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like everybody has, so volunteers have a motive. And the organization, in order to attract them and keep them, have to communicate what that, that, that motive is going to be met. So in your group, it, it'd be interesting to poll your volunteers to find out what their chief motivations are so that when you're out recruiting, you can speak to those. Um, and then you'll attract more people like that, right? Do you want to hear any, uh, another myth or? Sure. Yeah, look, it's wonderful. Yeah, keep rolling. Um, I've the talked about Toby, the more, the more you talk, the less John does. So I'm happy for you to get done. <laughs> well, I talked about volunteers not needing resources and support. I talked a lot about that already, but I, you know, I've done, I did a webinar once for a group and I asked them to poll everybody about what their biggest challenges were with volunteers. And, and somebody wrote in, you know, Hey, I just don't understand why I can't just find some volunteers that I can plug in and let them go. And I don't have to worry about them. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like on what planet? Like you don't do that with paid staff. Like, on, you know, that is just a ridiculous, like, you know, way of thinking about things. No, people need support. So I've talked a lot about different ways to support your volunteers. So I won't beat that one, uh, beat that uh, too much. But one last one myth that I completely bothers me to no end, it's my pet peeve, is that volunteers are thought of as the problem, not the solution. It drives me crazy because it's always a complaint about volunteers can't do this, volunteers aren't doing this, do, 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 do. And you know, if people would really take their thinking from scarcity mindset, there aren't enough volunteers, uh, I can't find volunteers, the volunteers I have aren't capable, et cetera, and really expand their thinking to a, a, a abundance mindset of there are plenty of people in the community that are willing and ready to help, but they need to know we exist. Um, and they need to know the opportunities and they need to know how important the need is. And volunteers and volunteerism is a solution to a lot of stuff in, at baseline, helping your organization meet its goals. On another level, volunteers' health is impacted. Volunteer, they've done plenty of research on this, that volunteers own mental wellness, their physical health, all of this, volunteering helps people be healthy. And in today's world, we need people to be healthy. You know, we also know, you know, volunteers uh, are also 
bumping up against people who are different than them in their volunteering experience. And in today's divided world, it is absolutely essential that we start to meet people outside of our own bubble. And so that when we see somebody who's different from us and we work alongside them, any internal biases we have, now this may happen on a subconscious level or on a conscious level to say, hmm, what I thought about that kind of person is not playing out here. I'm actually side by side by this kind of person and they're actually not what I thought. And so we start to break down divides when we're volunteering together. So, you know, volunteers are absolutely the solution, not the problem, but it's up to organizations to work through all of the, you know, sort of structural things that can make this type of activity flourish. Because gang, it's the only thing that's basically not monetized in the world right now. It's like the last vestige of something that is purely good if it's given the place and space to be purely good. And, you know, I don't know, I'm a fan. <laughs> I've been doing this for a while now. And so it just breaks my heart when people spend all their time complaining about volunteer. I'm like, are you kidding me? You're not seeing the forest for the trees here. Yeah. So well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you that it's, it's all good stuff. And, and honestly, I've probably taken more notes chatting with you than maybe any other podcast we've done, which as Nick knows, that just leads to more action items. But it's, but it's, but honestly, it's, it's been uh, wonderful to hear from a, a volunteer pro. Um, I mean, so much good stuff. And what you just said about, about sort of getting out and doing, being involved with whether it's a nonprofit or some other volunteer role. I, I agree with you. I think that's such a, I'm, it's one of the things I'm going to instill in my children is at some point in your life, sooner than later, you need to go work with an organization that does something good for the community. Maybe it's a soccer club, maybe it's uh, animal shelter, whatever it may be. Uh, but I, I think you just learn so many different things in a different way than going to your job at the bank or going to your job at the factory or construction, whatever. I just think it's, it's an extremely important thing that everybody in society should give some time, not forever, but even a period of time to something bigger than themselves. I think it's very important. And it's been a blast chatting with you. Yeah, sure. I, you know, and there's so many opportunities nowadays that weren't around when I was a kid. Like community service is part of your college application now. You know, I have a niece who uh, is, was a key club president in her high school, um, which is a club, if you don't know what a key club is, they do service in the community. And they're, they're teenagers who are really, excited about giving back. And, you know, she had actually done volunteering since she was a brownie. I interviewed her once, her and her cousin, I interviewed her for a blog post on teen volunteers. And she was like, people need to understand we've been volunteering since we were brownies. Like these nonprofit people don't understand. And I'm like, wow, you go girl, right? But when she applied for college, nearly every university, you know, and her grades were not like, you know, 4.5 or 4.3 or whatever, you know, advanced placement degree, uh, advanced placement grades, but she got into almost every university she applied to. And I said, yeah, because it's on the strength of your character that these schools are looking at your, wor your work in the community. And they're like, that is as important as your SAT right now. And so there's so many opportunities now and structure now that there used to not be that uh, there really isn't an excuse. 
Uh, and it's also a great way for kids to, you know, just explore different professions and see what the real deal is. You know, most volunteer managers we interview on our time and talent podcast, we interview volunteer managers. Nearly everyone started as a volunteer somewhere, including myself. My first job as a volunteer was an intern for the Seattle Arts Commission um, when I was getting ready to go to grad school. Uh, and, you know, almost all of us started there. So it's a great like toehold into the nonprofit space as well. So, um, but yeah, I can't, you know, I will say, you know, thank you to, if there's anybody in your league who's listening, thank them. And I'm, I'm telling them myself personally, thank you so much for all the work you do as a volunteer. Some of it is unsung, but you know, this type of activity, and we all love soccer to our core. I mean, to our core. I mean, I love soccer so much. I was trying to play it as a robot, you know, <laughs> to keep playing. Now I just live vicariously by watching Premier League, right? But there you go. But, you know, it is something that is so important. And there are so much more value going on besides just people engaged in sport. There's community being built. There's a lot more going on. People are staying healthy. People are staying active. You know, there's just a lot more going on. So uh, pat yourself on the back. If you're listening and you're a volunteer, your work is important. Sometimes it may be frustrating, but that doesn't matter. It still works. Uh, have a close to close heart to heart with somebody who's bugging you right now and get it worked out so you can continue to volunteer and serve. So just want to sure. say thank you to your audience. Thank you, Toby. Thank you, guys. Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, yeah. Thank you to everybody who's involved. Um, listen, Toby, like we said, this has been fantastic. And I, John will have 101 follow-ups. And I thank you sincerely for that because I don't know what I'd do if John wasn't pestering me. But um, if anyone has been inspired by your words, where can they find you on the assumption that you are happy to respond to them? Where can they find yes. you online? Or They can find me at, on LinkedIn at Toby mm -hmm. Johnson. Uh, they can find me on uh, volpro.net, which is our volunteer pro website. And on that website, if you, if you um, click on the top, we have a guide and you, know, you were talking about the guide, the PDF. It's a free PDF, you can download it. There's actually in the recruitment chapter, there's a free e-course that's delivered via email on volunteer recruitment strategy. So if you're thinking about building out your volunteer recruitment strategy, that might help you get a good start. Uh, if you're interested in speaking and that kind of thing, you can go to tobyjohnson.com. And I would really, if you want inspiration, check out the Time and Talent podcast. And we're on Apple and all the other places podcasts are, are found, so. Fantastic, okay, there. I will put. I've always wanted to say this, but I will put all those in the show notes. That's quite exciting for me. I've never had the opportunity to, we've never had a guest that's actually got stuff to promote. So fantastic. Um, again, sincerely, this has been one of the um, most informative and thought-provoking and I guess energizing, for want of a better word, um, conversations that we've had in a long time. Um, US soccer needs to look bigger than just people kicking a pig's bladder around. So thank you, Toby, sincerely. shall return we were so glad we could make it but so sad we gotta run well it might be a long time till we raise another glass you can rest assured that next time we'll have ourselves a laugh